I always enjoy when you sing. Next to myself, of course. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles, let's turn back to the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, for those of you that are, uh, we have the honor of your presence visiting with us today. We, we uh, are, are headed in a direction in our church to train people to really be able to work in their own life first and work through the problems by using biblical principles. We think that's foremost in our lives, being able to handle every circumstance or situation that comes into our life by going to the Bible. But then we want to develop a group of people that have the ability to help others. The ministry is simply taking what God has given us and then taking it to someone else and giving them. My father in the Lord said one time that ministry is nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And that is so true. And uh, that's what we're about here. And that's what we want to train people to be able to do, helping people uh, in the crises of their lives, being able to get to the Word of God and solve their issues, whether it be a bad marriage, problem with their children, their individual issues in their life. That's where we're at. And so we decided to study the book of 2 Corinthians because the book of 2 Corinthians is really uh, the handbook on ministry. It's a book that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth after he wrote 1 Corinthians. And it's an interesting two books. They kind of go together because, as I've said many times, in the book of 1 Corinthians, they're really messed up on just about everything, and he has to really deal with them. But somewhere in the process, they begin now to want to do what's right. So uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he writes them chapter by chapter, admonishing them and giving them great insight into how to do the ministry. For us, it forms the handbook of how the church today should really handle the issues and, and the great prost, uh, concepts. We talked about how uh, in chapter 2 that it's the great chapter on forgiveness. And it's built around uh, an issue that happened in chapter 1 where a man got into some problems into his life and uh, very serious problems. And the church, because he would not do what was right, the church then kind of excommunicated him. They, they put him out and said, until you get right with God, you know, uh, you're not coming back and we're not going to have any fellowship with you, which is the biblical way to handle it when somebody was, doesn't want to do what's right. Someplace in the process, we're not told the details, someplace in the process, this man comes to himself and wants to get back in fellowship and make it right with God. At that point, Paul begins then to tell the church, hey, look, if this guy... Just like you, you put him out now that he because he wouldn't do right. Now he wants to do right. You got to bring him back, and he lays out for us the great chapter uh, on the aspect that as Christians we need to be able to have the ability to forgive people. Many times we've talked about it already in our introductory sermons. Many times it's people who have done something to you personally. Sometimes it's people who just fall into sin and have to be dealt with. I think last week probably gave you the basis for your ability to understand not only the whole concept of forgiveness, but to how to take the fundamental foundation in your own life and make it work for you. Because we laid out the great doctrine, probably the single greatest doctrine in the Bible for you and for me in relationship to how we deal with issues, and that is the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Now we know that you and I are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a spiritual priesthood that Christ is our high priest. And remember I told you last week, I showed you the example of the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, which was physical. 
is a picture of the spiritual priesthood that you and I are part of because we are God's children. And just as the uh, Old Testament priesthood worked within the tabernacle, we then as God's priests work within the tabernacle, our body, to reconcile a man to God. And that's really, that's really what dealing with people and their problems in life are. If you're dealing with somebody who's unsaved, what your goal ought to be is to reconcile them to God through salvation because they're never going to have anything in life that is going to work for them. They'll have no power over the sin in their life. They have no power over anything in their life until they come to a place in their life where they have the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. That's where they get the power to overcome everything. So when you're dealing with unsaved people, you're dealing basically in the format to try to get them through their issues, their circumstances, reconciled to God as far as salvation. But there'll be many times that you're going to work with people who are struggling in life who are saved people. And they've gotten off the track or they've got into some bad situations in their life and uh, now they're having some real issues in their own personal relationship. In that sense... You're there to reconcile them to God, not back through their salvation. They're already saved, but through their fellowship, to get them back where they need to be. And that's very key to understand that. And that's what a priest did in the Old Testament. Somebody came up in a literal sense and said, hey, I trespassed against my, my neighbor here. I shot his dog. I didn't mean to, but, you know, it, I did. And the guy said, he's, he's really upset with me. So he actually brought an offering to that priest And that priest took that offering and he did the work and he made it right before God and then it all went down the chain of command, so to speak, and that's how it worked out. Obviously, we don't do that physically. You bringing an offering uh, to to God because of your sin, whether you're saved or you're lost, doesn't do any good for anything. No, no. What God's looking for in you and me is a broken spirit and a heart that contrite that wants to do what's right. And when you have that, then you and I take that person through the Word of God as God's spiritual priest, and we bring them through that process to get reconciled to God. That's simply how it works. And you can better see now and hopefully understand how that this great doctrine of the priesthood of the believer and its application to our lives is really uh, your foundation for your ability to be able to forgive. Two key words we looked at last week, and you want to remember these two key words because you will hear them a lot and you will be re- required to know them. And that is uh, where he said, in, I forgive anybody in Christ's stead. And then he says, in the person of Christ, you and I. The idea that when you and I work with somebody in the Bible and help them through life or get them reconciled to God or you and I forgive them or bring them into our life, we're actually standing in the place of Christ. He's up at the right hand of Father as the high priest. You and I are doing the work of the ministry as his priest on this earth and having the power to deal with them through the Word of God. You know, there's a lot of confusion today. Many churches take the form of a a very high ecclesiastical, um, you know, hierarchy. Uh, And and I talk about that. Basically, what comes to mind would be the Roman Catholic Church. And this is not a criticism of them. It's just the way that it is. In their theology, what they teach is that, that the Pope is the vicar of Christ. Vicar of Christ means in the place of Christ. That when God went back to heaven, they left him in charge. And then you have an ecclesiastical high order that comes down to a hierarchy that works its way down to what we know as Roman Catholic priests. And that's why so many Catholic people, or all Catholic people, are required to, uh, they go to that priest 
and uh, they, they have confession, they tell them, and then the priest has the ability then to give them uh, whatever he does, and, and that helps them get exonerated from their sin and, and, and through confession and all the, the things that they've got to do. And that's how a, 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 a structured church in an ecclesiastical way that has all of the things, you know, done in a fashion that all comes back to a spiritual hierarchy. But in the Bible... The spiritual hierarchy starts with Jesus Christ. He is my high priest. And everything I have, I have with him. The Bible says that there's no mediator between man and God other than Christ Jesus. And in the Old Testament, yes, you had to go to a literal priest and confess your sin. You don't need to confess anything to me. You have a high priest seated on the right hand of God, the Father, who makes intercession for you. That's the only priest you need. Your job and my job is to facilitate that of helping somebody get to that point where they understand it. In the Roman Catholic Church, you have to go uh, years and years and years to seminary, and then you get ordained as a priest, and then you have the ability to do that. In the Bible, every one of you today who are saved, you are, because you saved, the moment you got saved, you're part of that spiritual priesthood and have the ability through the Word of God to do what I do every day. And uh, most people think that my job is different than your job. But this is one of the mindsets I'm trying to change. And, you know, many of you have picked up the idea. There really isn't any difference between me and you. I am a pastor. That is an office within a church that puts me over this church in accountability to God as far as the leader. But my daily ministry duties are exactly what you ought to be doing. And that's the concept of, of God's priesthood. And that's the way it has to work. Christ is my high priest, and you and I are his priests, and we minister the Word of God in people's lives every time you try to help somebody with the Bible. Now, today I want to read again this passage uh, and begin to see why it is so vital uh, to get the spirit of forgiveness down. And not just because of the greatest character quality of Christ is his ability to forgive, that's really important, but rather to see how it will affect you in your own life. And then later on in the lives of people that you're going to work with. And you'll see today that it's not just uh, for others who have hurt you or you yourself, though it's very important. But in dealing with people down the line, down in the road in your life, you will, you will use this and teach this and find yourself dealing with this over and over and over again. We'll talk about that here in a little bit as we get through it because... There's always going to be an issue along that. All right, let's read where we started last week, and let's uh, pick it up in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and we're going to focus on another verse today. He says, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I might not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that, contrawise, he ought rather to forgive him and comfort him lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up uh, over much sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For who I forgive anything, to whom I forgave it, uh, for your sakes forgave it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We ask you today, Father, to give us wisdom and insight as we look at this great passage and focus on yet again another great principle. I pray, Lord, that you'll raise up out of this church 
uh, men and women who have the desire and have the ability to be able to stand uh, in your place and take the open Word of God and to help people, to help them through their issues in life, that we might be faithful priests as we uh, ministrate the Word of God and minister to people's lives and their needs. And we thank you, Father, and praise you for our time today. And we pray you'll bless us in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, you heard me say many times how that God has a plan for your life, and, and you should probably understand that by now. I'm sure you do. But I'll tell you something else. Just as God has a plan for your life, the devil has a plan for your life. All through the Bible, you're going to find the Bible is in conflict over two things. There's only two spiritual beings, two forces in this universe when it comes right down to it from a Bible standpoint. One of them's God, one of them's the devil. And where God died for you and wants you to, you to be everything for him, the devil wants you to be everything for him. And you find it in a great uh, story in the Bible in the book of Daniel. I think Daniel chapter 1, when we get into the real hands-on counseling things, we'll spend a lot of time in Daniel chapter 1. The book of Daniel is an incredible book, especially chapter 1. And I know that Daniel is the book that everybody gets excited about, about prophecy. And I understand all of that. There's some great prophecies in Daniel. But don't get so excited about the prophecy that you miss that Daniel is probably one of the most practical books you're ever going to find in the Bible for your life and my life. Because Daniel pictures you and me. And this idea that the devil uh, has a plan for you and God has a plan for you is never more clearly laid out than it is in the book of Daniel chapter 1. And you, you basically know the story. Daniel, the Bible says, is of the king's seed. He's in the line of Christ. In that sense, he's a picture of you and me because you and I are in Christ's line through a spiritual new birth. He's in the line of Christ through a physical birth. And you'll find him in that line uh, in Christ's genealogy when you, if you ever study it out. Well, what has happened is this. Israel's went down into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar has come down, and this is about 606 B.C. now, and has taken the whole nation of Israel in captive. And the first thing he does, the Bible says, is he scans over all of Israel, and he picks the very best that Israel had to offer. In other words, he goes after the key men and women who have the potential to ever bring Israel back to God. He looks at the sharpest, the neatest, the keenest minds that Israel had. The ones that had all the ability, if Israel ever got back on track, could rise up and be the great spiritual leaders. Those are the ones that he targeted. And he brings them to Babylon. When he brings them to Babylon, the Bible says that he instructs their keepers to uh, give them a daily provision. And to give them and to teach them, the Bible says, the way of the Chaldeans to give them certain food that they would eat, to bring certain things into their lives that were, were totally foreign from what they had uh, when they were in, uh, back in their homeland. I couldn't go in time this morning would not permit me to tell you the, the wickedness and the ungodliness of the Chaldeans. That Nebuchadnezzar himself is not only the, a great type of the devil in the Bible, he's also one of the 18 types of the Antichrist. And the Babylonian Empire was as wicked as you could ever imagine it to be. And what he wants to do is take these children of the king's seed, Daniel and all these ones that he's taken, and amalgamate them in. And the Bible tells us that he wants to do it for three years. And it clearly says down there around verse 5 that at the end of three years, after they give them all this stuff and do all this stuff, 
teach them the thought, the uh, thinking, and the teaching, and the tongue, and, the, and, the, and all the stuff that goes on with it. At the end of three years, he says that they might stand before the king, being Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that's a great picture. That picture shows you that Daniel wanted, God wanted Daniel to stand before him, but Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel to stand before him. And just like you and me, God's got a plan for your life. The devil, Nebuchadnezzar's got a plan for your life. And you see the process too, because Nebuchadnezzar then bring all the things of the world, all of the things of the filthiness of the Chaldeans and the Babylonian Empire, he put in their lives to try to get them and uh, to stand before him. So my point is simply this. You're going to take a stand one way or the other. There will be no neutral parties in this thing called life because the two opposing parties or forces here, God and the devil, will not permit it. The moment you decide you're not going to stand for God, you're going to stand for the devil. And you can't take a middle ground and say, well, I'm not standing for either one. That doesn't work. You're either one or the other. And Bible says God's viewpoint is if you're not with me, you're against me. And that's not a good position to be in. And like I said, the devil wants to destroy you and your family and have you die in sin. God, on the other hand, died for you and your family. One wants you to be in heaven with him forever. The other wants you to be in hell with him forever. So you got to understand that God has a plan for your life, but the devil has a plan for your life. And there's another great principle when it comes to dealing with situations like this and, and maybe will help you understand. And, and you'll, you'll tell this to people when you're working with them to try to get them to see this. Now, the devil wants, first and foremost, wants to get you in hell. No question about that. So from the time you're born, he throws everything in your life to try to get you that way. On the other hand, the other force, God wants to get you into heaven. So he'll do everything to get you that way. And along the way, some of you have trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, if not all of you. And at that point, we now know from the Bible that the devil never can get your soul in hell now, ever. You're sealed under the day of redemption. There is no such thing as losing your eternal security uh, and losing your salvation. That's just trumped up in the minds of people that the devil has put there to defeat them all of their lives. Once you trust Christ as your own personal Savior, you're hooked. And he's yours and you're his. It's never a question after that, are you saved or lost? The only question after that, are, are you a good child of God that's obedient to him or a bad child of God? I've never understood it. All of you have kids, most of you. And you know, you older folks, you know that when you had kids, your kids weren't perfect every day. And you know there's times you had to deal with them, whip them, give them this or give them that and, and hold them accountable for things. But, you know, the worst thing they ever did, they're still your child. But you have to correct them, and that's the way it works with God. Now, when you understand that, then you realize this. The first plan the devil gets is to get you in hell. When you get saved, that plan goes out the window. But he's not done with you yet. He'll just take it this way. He'll say in his mind, if I can't get your soul in hell, and you got saved, and now you're eternally God's, here's what I'll do. Even though I can't get you, I'll get your kids. I'll get your family. I'll get the people you work with. And what he does, he'll allow you to go to heaven and make that choice, but then he'll 
put all these things that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to put into the Hebrew children of the king's seed, and he'll play the odds. Even though he'll never get you, he knows that if you become a wishy-washy person, and you never take a stand, and you never grow spiritually, and you never do anything with your life, he may never get you, but there'll be hundreds or maybe even thousands of people. I know parents today uh, that they're going to heaven and their kids are going to die and go to hell just as sure as I'm standing here. You know why? Because they got saved at some point in their life and then the devil got them off track and then the rest of their life he kept them ineffective. So what I want you to know today and begin to understand this thing is God's got a plan for you, but the devil's got a plan for you. And uh, it's a battle for, your, for who you're going to follow. And uh, now, just as God, as I said, has a plan, and he'll put everything in your life to help that plan. That's why he gave you the Bible. Why he gave you the Holy Spirit of God. Why he gave you a church with a pastor and people that will help you. But at the same time, just as God will put everything in your life to help you, the devil will put everything in his life to stop you. And you look at that, and I've had people say, I say, well, how in the world am I ever going to win if I'm in this gigantic chess game where God and the devil are knocking me all over the board? And, of course, the answer to that is the truth of the matter is if you're saved this morning, you have already won. You just don't know it. And I would advise you to go back to Daniel chapter 1 and find out how Daniel dealt with it. Because the answer is in verse 8. He was just like you. He was faced with everything that came around him. And yet, he was taken out of his home. He never saw his parents again. He never saw his friends again. If there's anybody who could have justified his situation, which we like to do, and said, well, here I am. God stuck me here, so I'm going to make the best of it. It would have been Daniel. And that's what we do so many times. But the Bible says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. You see, Daniel knew that the devil had no power over him. And that's the thing you need to learn today. If you, and this is where I'm going with this. The devil has absolutely no power over you in anything as a Christian, in anything in your life, unless we give it to him. And with that, I go back to what I told you last week about the Samson principle. And Samson is another great example that we'll spend a lot of time with here next year. Samson is a great picture of all of us. As a Nazarite, God has a job for Samson. He wants him to do. But oh, look what happened. The devil stopped him at every turn. But the only way he could stop him because Samson, much like you and me, allowed the devil to do it. You see, Samson's like most of us, our saved Christians. He violates every principle that you can find in his life that God gives you. And then he walks around wondering why his life's always in a disaster. There's two great New Testament principles that are found as the root of his problem. And I tell you that every story in the Old Testament, I've told you this before... Is what you do is you find the story and then you find the New Testament principles and you line them up and boof, you got the greatest picture and the teaching concept to give somebody exactly what their circumstances are. And he forsakes two great biblical principles that are the root of his problem. And as long as he or you or me continue to violate these two principles, we ain't going anywhere. Principle number one is found in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 27. And the Bible says there that you and I 
are to give no place to the devil. Now remember, the devil has no power over you if you're a saved person. If you're unsaved here this morning, you have no power against him. But if you're saved here this morning, he has absolutely no power over you unless you give place to the devil in your life. The second principle is found in Romans chapter 13, verse 14. And you find him doing this all the time. The Bible says there that you and I are to make no provision. That's food for the flesh. Now, these two principles is what gets him in trouble. And these two principles are what get us in trouble. Our issues in our lives that keep us from uh, doing the work of a priest or as our own choice. We choose not to forgive somebody. You see? We choose not to forgive somebody. That's our choice. That's what we do. We choose not to do what we're supposed to do. And uh, I, I, I have a rule that I, 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 you've probably heard me say it before, that when I deal with people and they got problems, and this is the rule that you'll want to learn. And it's something, it's a basic fundamental thing that's your concept, but most dealing with people is basically based on fundamental concepts. And it's simply this. You cannot change. You cannot change or solve issues in your life with the same kind of thinking that created those issues or those problems in your life. Something has to change. In Samson's life, it never changed. It never did. Samson, like most of us, always takes the path that makes the choice that is best for him. He never stops and considers, God's got a job for me to do. I'm one of the judges. I'm supposed to be the great deliverer for my people, the nation of Israel. He never thinks about that. All of his life and every choice he makes is about him. And boy, I'll tell you what, he is a, one of the greatest studies in the Bible on human nature. A couple of weeks ago, and I, I love to hear the, how things kind of shake down. A couple of weeks ago, I, I, I gave you a little, I've done it for quite a while, and I give you a little concept that when it starts wrong, it ends wrong. Now, you've got to keep in mind, I'm teaching this to you, in a conceptual concept. I'm not necessarily preaching this to you. I'm preaching this at you. That you will get it and understand the concepts to help you, yes, with your own life first. But human nature is such an amazing thing. I don't know how many people have called me on the phone or talked to me over the process of that since I started doing that. And they simply, and it, you know, people hear what they want to hear. What I understand in the Bible why you can listen but not hear. I mean, it's very clear when you deal with many people. People, just like you choose to serve God or not serve God, we choose what we want to hear and what we don't want to hear. You can hear a sermon, and you know what you'll hear? You'll hear the things in there that don't affect you, and you will never hear the things that you need to change about your life. That's just the way we are. Somebody called me up here a couple of weeks ago and said, well, you know what? You said, uh, you know, it starts wrong, it ends wrong. You know, he said, why, should I even, why should I even try that? It, they don't hear the part that says, unless you change it, unless you do the right thing, if it starts wrong, it ends wrong. And immediately people will say, well, I'm in a bad marriage, I'm in a bad scenario, it started wrong, so why not just end it? That's the way human nature goes. But you see, I wasn't talking about if it starts wrong, it ends wrong being your marriage. You missed the part. I'm not saying if, you, if your marriage starts wrong you're, 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 when it ends wrong. I'm not talking about your marriage. Now, your marriage may get a divorce, and you may get married a thousand times. 
You may have all kinds of problems. But when I say it starts wrong and ends wrong, I'm not talking about the end of your marriage. I'm talking about the day you stand at the judgment seat of Christ. That's where it's going to end wrong. Because God's got a plan for your life. But you see, remember, I talked to you about looking short term. That's all you see. Well, I'm in a bad marriage or I'm in a bad relationship or I'm in this or I'm in that. So Bob said, if it starts wrong and ends wrong, there's my out. I'm not talking about your bad relationship or your marriage. I'm talking about if you don't change it, where it's going to end wrong is the judgment seat of Christ. Because God has something he wants you to do. Your marriage is just part of that process, good, bad, or indifferent. People hear what they want to hear. Samson, like most of us, is always taking the path that makes the choice best for him. And that's what we do. I do. I know you do. I've watched you. I know I do. I've watched me. Sometimes I'll stand here and step out and watch me. I just did it. See, that's me. That's human nature. We all do it. And today I want to focus on what happens when you don't learn the concept of forgiving and choose to follow your own heart instead of God's heart. Thursday night, I forget who asked the question in Psalm 32.8, but it was an incredible question. It was that question over there that talked about that God will guide you with his eye. And I took you back to Song of Solomon. I told you how that simply means that, that you see the same things that God sees the same way. I'm not saying just see the same thing God sees. I'm saying the same thing God sees the same way he sees it. That's the difference. That'll take the selfish motive out of it. That'll take the flesh out of it. That'll take the personal element out of it. And that's where it's at. And today, uh, I want to just focus on one verse. We're going to probably be in 2 Corinthians for a long time here, chapter 2. But I want to focus on one verse that set the stage for our study of how forgiveness will in time, if you don't learn to forgive, it'll absolutely destroy you. Absolutely destroy you. Remember now, to forgive or not to forgive is a choice that we make. Based on the two principles, giving place to the devil, making no provision for the flesh. Now, I know that that will work in every area of your life, but we're talking about the concept of forgiveness here. These two are based on violating these two biblical principles and doing what we want instead of what God wants because we don't see that God has a plan for us. Now, I want you to look at verse 10 and 11. It says in verse 10, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgive it, for your sakes, forgive it I uh, in the person of Christ. Now here's our verse today, verse 11. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now that's the verse I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about the concept of Satan getting the advantage in your life. And then I want to talk to you about the second part of that verse, that we are not to be ignorant of his devices. And there's two parts to this verse, and I want you to see it today. And in theory, Satan should never be able to get the advantage over you, but in practice, it happens all the time. You know, in parenting, dealing with parents, I always tell parents this when they have little children. And I think it's probably the single greatest piece of advice that anybody could ever give anybody who's raising children. And I always tell them, I always say, never, ha- let, never allow anybody to have more influence in your child's life than you. Never. Never. Never allow anybody to have more influence in your child's life than than you. 
And, you know, you, 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 the reason why your child hits 12, 13, 14, and 15, and you can't tell them anything now, is because you lost the advantage to somebody else. And many times it'll be a teacher. Many times it'll be a, it'll be a coach. It'll be somebody who befriended them because you were just too busy. There was somebody who would listen to them when they wanted to talk because you didn't shut the TV off. And what happens is as parents lose the advantage with their children because they allow their child to have a, a relationship with somebody that has more influence with them than you do. This is why your daughter will come to the point when she's 15 or 16 years old, she'll, 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 uh, she'll hook up with the, the, some guy with earrings down to his toes and, uh, you know, with druid stuff all over his body and ringing his nose and a bone through the thing, you know, and, and with big, his ears down like some African cannibal, you know, with, with pop bottle tops in it or whatever they put in them, you know, and you'll look there and say, my God, where did you find this guy? Are you in a movie? Are you part of the casting of something, you know? Uh, uh, you know what? How she found it? Because you wouldn't listen. You, did, you let she, that goofy guy get more of an advantage of her life. And guys do the same thing with girls. The moment you allow somebody to have more influence in your child's life, you're too busy for them at 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. So now it's 15, 16, 7, 18, 19. They're too busy for you. You didn't guard that relationship and now it's too late. Satan gets the advantage over you and I the exact same way. When we start associating with things and spending more time with things that are not of God, the Word of God, the people of God, we start spending more time with the devil's crowd and him than we do God's people and his crowd, then somebody has more influence in your life than God. And that's what it comes down to. You yield yourself to other influences that are outside the Word of God. Now, this is why the church should be a family. This is why the church should never be a political machine. It should be a family of people who are human, who all make mistakes, that all help each other, that are all there like one big family. And all the times they get together should be fun, it should be joyful, but it should all be centered around the Word of God. There should be no fear here on my part or your part in any way, shape, or form. We're all the same. We're all got the same goal. We're just trying to get to it. I may be the guy in charge, but in, in the end of the day, I'm no different than you. And we all work together. We all got to help each other. And that's what God intended the church to be. And if it's that way and it's healthy that way, then nobody will ever get an advantage over you because nobody ever pull you from that. I've seen it happen with gals that get hooked up with unsaved guys or guys that get hooked up with unsaved women. It's a thing where they come to church, they get involved, but they're out there on the peripheral, or they just never really fix the things in their life. They come to Bible study, they come to church, they hear everything that everybody else hears, but then suddenly some unsaved guy or some unsaved gal drags them off. And there's a process to it. You can watch it happen. First thing it goes is Thursday night Bible study. Then they're not in a prayer group. Then they don't do this, then they don't do that. And very slowly they make that process. And it's a process that they're now, through association, spending more time and somebody else is getting more of the advantage than God is. But in that case, that's their choice. But that's what happens. It's exactly what happens. Simply put, Satan gets the advantage over us when we won't apply the principles to our life that God has given us and start applying the principles to the world. And what we simply do is we start as Christians giving place to the devil and then provision for our flesh. Those two principles will kill you every time. 
I don't care what problem a person gets into. I don't care, say person, I don't care what the extent it is, how, what level it is. I'm going to tell you right now, at the beginning of that concept problem, when it took issue and it took birth and it grew legs, is those two principles. Every time you give place to the devil, he got the advantage over you, and you fed your flesh. It's just that simple. You know, you and I forsake the clear mandate of the Word of God, of our priesthood to forgive and to forget, in our life first, and don't deal with the issue the way we should biblically, then that's how the devil gets advantage over us in this particular issue of forgiving. And when you don't forgive somebody, or you have the inability to forgive somebody in your own life or somebody, and you know what? And I've seen people be absolutely at odds with people uh, that never did anything to them. They may have done something wrong, but it doesn't matter if they wanted to make it right. It did nothing to them. It's just that their arrogant, self-righteous attitude will not allow themselves to forgive somebody. I mean, I can understand you might struggle with somebody that did something to you personally, but somebody, brother or sister out here, just falls into sin and then you don't like them when it had nothing to do with you, that's the height of where I'm going this morning to show you how this thing works. Now, if you don't know it, we talk about levels going up. How I want you to start at a level like our church did and then move up these levels. And you and I, are uh, this counseling concept will take us up to the next levels. The prayer groups took us up to the next level. Restart took us up to the next level. I always talk about going up those levels. Well, let me tell you something. When the devil's in your world and you're doing it, standing for him, those, there's levels too, but they don't go up. They go down. Amen. And it's just as clear. You're either going to stand before Nebuchadnezzar or you're going to stand before God. It's just that simple. And God's levels go up, Nebuchadnezzar, the devil's levels go down. It's not hard. It's not hard. Now, when you don't forgive somebody, an automatic process starts in your life. And it doesn't go up. It goes down. And this is the reason why forgiveness is one of the most crucial things. Because unforgiveness in the Bible always follows a biblical pattern. Much like human nature, like people's problems, like people's thinking process, patterns. And unforgiveness follows a biblical pattern. It starts with unforgiveness, and it starts, then it goes to anger, then it goes to hatred, and then it winds up in bitterness. Now, anger and hatred are two great words in the Bible, because uh, anger is a biblical concept. God gave you the ability to have the emotion of anger. There's nothing wrong with anger. Anger is defined in the Bible in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, where the Bible says that, uh, that he that is anger with his brother without a cause is guilty before the court. And, uh, and see, if you have a, a legitimate cause to be angry, angry is a legitimate emotion. I always thought it was interesting that in all the new Bibles, that verse says there, uh, he that is angry without a cause is guilty before the court. And what the new Bibles all do is they take out the phrase without a cause. And so the new Bible just says, he that is angry with his brother is guilty before the court. And nobody ever sees that. But when you get into the Bible and you're paying attention, there was a time when Jesus Christ was angry with his brother when he threw him out of the temple. But you see, he had a cause. You have made my father south a den of thieves. The new Bibles take out without a cause and just make Jesus Christ a guilty sinner before the court. See how the devil does it? It's exactly what they do. That Bible says that anger is okay as long as anger is under the control of the principles of the Word of God. Anger is not, a, there's some things you should be angry about. And there's some things that you should be angry about and, and you should, uh, I, I, don't think, uh, I don't think any guy's worth a salt in preaching if he isn't angry about something. 
but it has to be contained within the Bible principles. See, anger by itself is not wrong. It's anger out of control that's wrong. And that's what happens. You get dads and husbands and, and wives and people who get angry and it's out of control because it isn't guidelined by the principle. So that's wrong, you see. Anger is a legitimate God-given emotion, but it has to be guidelined by the Word of God. Now, the next one is hatred or hate. And there are things as a Christian you should hate. Somebody asked a question the other night in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, the six things that God hates. Well, there's six things you can put on a list as a Christian you ought to hate. You ought to hate what God hates. See? But we don't worry about hating things. We worry about hating people, and you shouldn't hate people. But people do. Now, hatred is a biblical emotion, too. The Bible says that God hates with a perfect hatred. Psalms 39. There's no motive behind it. God hates on the basis of his holiness. God hates sin. God hates evil. You ought to hate sin. You ought to hate evil. But you don't need to hate the person sitting next to you. You don't need to hate your neighbor. You don't need to hate your ex-wife or your ex-husband. Well, we'll leave that one go. You don't need to, you don't need to hate people. You need to look at people like God looked at them. And no, you may not agree with them. Or you may not like them. Or you don't choose them for your friends. The bottom line is you got to love them. I had a lady one time, she came in to me, she has all kinds of marital problems. She had them for years. And she says, Bob, she says, I just, she says, I just, I just hate my husband. And I said, well, hon, I said, I understand that. But, but you know, you, you can't do that. Bible says you can't hate. She says, well, I just can't, I can't, I, I just can't love him. I can't like him as, as my husband. I just hate him. Then I said, well, if you can't, if you can't, if you, if you, if you can't love him as your husband, then, then, and you hate him, then, 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 then love him as your neighbor. She says, I can't even love him as my neighbor. And I said, okay, then, if it's that bad, then love him as your enemy, because that's what you got to do. See, there's no ground for a Christian for hatred outside the biblical pro- process of hatred. Hate the things that God hates. You don't hate people. I've had people do some of the most horrendous things to me in my 40-some years in the ministry. I don't hate anybody. I'm not angry at anybody. You know what? When you understand how the concept works, you don't, want, you don't want to go down that path because unforgiveness follows a biblical pattern of anger and hatred, and then it turns to bitterness. And now bitterness is not a biblical emotion. Bitterness is not a biblical emotion. Bitterness is a process of out-of-control unforgiveness, uncontrolled hatred, uncontrolled anger. It's when you get unforgive and it turns to anger, it's out of control, it goes to hatred, it's out of control. That level down will take you to bitterness. And there's no place in the Bible or there's no place in your mind for my life for bitterness. Bitterness is a result of out of control anger and hatred. And uh, it's outside the biblical principles of the Word of God. Now, this last level that you get to when you don't learn to forgive this is why the Bible says in Proverbs, you're like a city broken down without walls if you have no rule over your own spirit. Your emotions control you. A person who hates out of control and a person who uh, is angry out of control and who lets it get them to bitterness out of control is a person who is not operating in the biblical principles. And this last level is the final level. It's the final step for a Christian. It is no lower to go than this. And I might say that when you reach this level, most do not return. 
because now the devil has absolutely complete full advantage over you. Now, I want to give you the defining chapter on bitterness in the Bible. And we're going to look at it for a minute, and this will help you maybe put it into context. It's over there in Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to look at this. I think it's very important. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, pick it up in verse 14 and 15. We'll start at 14. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man can see God. Look at 15, what we want to look at. Look diligently, lest any man fail in the grace of God, lest the, here it comes, root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Now, I want to talk about that verse for a moment, and I want you to understand the concept of bitterness. Because, let me tell you something. I can't ever hardly remember a problem that a couple didn't have or a person didn't have that was a deep level problem that when you started peeling back all the layers like an onion and getting down to the core, that at the base of that was not the concept of bitterness based on something somebody did to them. Many times when husband and wives have very serious marital problems and they can't get through them, there may be a million things out there that we could talk about. But you know what the real aspect of the problem is? The fact that one or two or maybe both of them are bitter to each other. And they're bitter to each other over something that probably happened 10 years ago. That the other person doesn't even remember. Or maybe it's an ongoing thing or a series of things. When men get into a relationship with a woman and they don't understand the difference between a man's spirit and a woman's spirit, and he tramples over that spirit and crushes it like an eggshell, let me tell you something. You're in for some problems with bitterness down the line. I guarantee you, unless you're smart enough to fix it on sight. Because that comes back to a man not having the ability to see his wife's spirit and realize that she is the weaker vessel. And where you and me can get in a fight, Joe, and after I whip the floor up with you, you and me can get in a fight, and then afterwards we just say, hey, it's okay, buddy. I mean, you know, remember the time I stuffed you in volleyball down there and you got upset about it? Remember that? How you went up what? and I, I reached down and pulled your leg down and, and then you got, remember afterwards you got me in the parking lot and, and what did I say? I said, Joe, what did I say to you? Oh, I said, Joe, you hit me and you're out of the church. You said, oh, I'm sorry, Bob, at that point. Two guys can get in a fight and say, hey, buddy, it was all right. We pick it up and go on from there. See, you can do that. That's what guys do. The problem is guys think that they can do that with their girlfriends or women or their wives. You know, you say something to your wife. You've got to be careful what you say. When your wife comes down and says, do I look fat in this dress? <laughs> no, you just simply say, honey. Have you lost weight? <laughs> Put a mental note. When she goes to get her hair done, mark it down. First thing you say when she walks in the door, whoa, I like your hair. Don't make her say, do you like my hair? You want to know what a bad hair day is? A bad hair day is a day you don't recognize she got her hair done. That's a bad hair day. Trust me on it. That's a bad, bad hair day. Men are supposed to be smarter than that, but they're not, unfortunately. You know, they don't understand that you trample over a woman's spirit. And you know what? You just don't say, ah, come on. And it happens all the time. You know, you do something really stupid and you really hurt her. And then you simply say, I'm sorry. She says, I've said I'm sorry. She's still crying. Well, I said I'm sorry. Come on, let's go do something. 
why don't you want to go do something? I said I was sorry. See, that's what me and Joe did when I whipped on him. That's what me and Joe did. Doesn't work that way with her. Different spirit. Different spirit. And the quicker you learn that, the quicker you're going to be better off in life. I guarantee you. But that's just the way it works. I mean, it's a thing where it, it, when you get to that point, when you start dealing with people, when you start peeling off the layers, I guarantee you, down in the bottom of that, down there is a bitterness spirit over something that happened that maybe the guy didn't know when he did it, still doesn't know when he's doing it, and has continued to do it. And, until you fix that root problem, if it can be fixed, until you identify that and deal with it, you ain't going anywhere. You ain't going anywhere at all. You're just like a four-wheel drive with all four wheels stuck in the mud up to the hubs. You ain't going no place. I mean, you are stuck until you understand that. And this is why it's so important for you to realize what I'm getting ready to tell you. Because you're going to use this over and over again because I guarantee you. I've met Christians that didn't go to church anywhere. And, and we're saved people. And after I'd start to talk to them and I'd find out, you know, well, I wish to go to so-and-so church. And I was faithful in it for years and years and years and years. And, and I, I thought to myself, wow. I said, you know, it's a, that's, a, that's an incredible thing. I said, how come you don't go to church? And then he goes in to tell me how that the pastor or the deacons or somebody said something to hurt his feelings 25 years ago. And he's bitter about it and hadn't been to church since. Now, to me, I know I got to deal with people's problems and I'm sympathetic to that and I talk to them and work them through it. But deep down inside my heart, and I would never say this, but I'm teaching you. I think that's about the stupidest thing you could ever do in your life. Let one thing in life ruin the rest of your life when the people you hate and are bitter against have long forgotten the event and don't even know it. I had a friend of mine, he's dead now, and you, some of you would know who this guy is, so I won't tell you. Some of you old people have been around for a while. And... Uh, this guy was saved, and I liked him. Kind of a bully, but I liked him. And uh, one time years ago, a kind of little riff went on in the church, and, and he kind of took the wrong side. And uh, everybody else left the church, and he stayed. And publicly, in a deacon's meeting, and back then we had 175 deacons. We only had three people in the church, but we, boy, we had leadership up the kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and there must have been 40 guys there that were deacons and pastors. And we probably had 30 pastors. And, 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 you know, and he ripped him, I was going to say a new one. That's not very kosher. He ripped him a new one. Sounds like new one. He ripped him to shreds in front of these deacons. Now, personally, I don't think the guy had that coming. I knew the inside of the story. I knew that that was, should have never happened. But I had nothing to do. I was like, you know, I have no responsibility here whatsoever. I was just a new guy in the block. But, I, but this guy, he never forgot that. He kept coming to church, but I watched him over the years. I ran into him before he died, and this had been 20 years since this happened. We met at the gym. I saw him there. We talked for a little bit. We were walking around the thing together. And I'm just talking to him. And, you know, I'd always kind of liked this guy. And I always felt sorry because I thought he got a raw deal because the pastor that did it to him was a wuss. And he was trying to make himself like he was a leader. And he was no leader whatsoever. So he just, no, it's not the one you're thinking of. But he just, you know, he, he just, it was, a, it, was a, it was a tragedy. And I felt bad for him. And so we're walking around 20 years after the fact. 
we're walking around a track together and we're just talking out of nowhere, like a lightning bolt, like a meteor coming through the, the atmosphere. He just jumped right back 20 years and I saw he had never, never, never got past that day in his life. And he was angry, he was bitter, and he was absolutely, all because of one thing in his life that he could not get over. You talk about the devil getting advantage of him, he'll do it to you too if you let him. He will. He will. Now, what I'm going to give you today in this passage is are eight principles on dealing with and understanding the sin of bitterness. And you want to get these down. These are not great theological terms that you're going to find, but they're great practical things. They're things that will help you always remember what you're dealing with when you're dealing with somebody who's got a problem of bitterness because bitterness goes back through hatred, goes back through anger, goes back to what we're talking about in this chapter, the inability to forgive. Now it says down here, verse 15, it says the root of bitterness. Now the root of something is where it starts. So, what we're going to talk about here is where does bitterness start? The root of bitterness. The root of bitterness lies in the sin of having an unforgiving spirit and giving the devil the advantage in your life or my life by violating the physical principles on forgiveness. Remember now, you're a priest. It's your job to forgive and work through that just like Christ. Now, look at verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail in the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. All right, here's the root of bitterness. When you have bitterness in your life, or you're dealing with somebody that is bitter in their life, here's the root problem. Don't get caught up with the symptoms. Go right to the root problem. And the root problem is defined for you in verse 15. Anybody see it? Raise your hand if you can think you know what it is. Verse 15. This will show and tell. Look at verse 15. Anybody? What do you got, Tabby? Absolutely. The root of the bitterness is that the grace of God was a failure in your life. Say, what does that mean, Bob? It means I'm not saved? Absolutely not. Failure of the grace of God in your life or my life in any particular problem simply means this. The reason why bitterness gets advantage on you and the devil gets an advantage on you is because of the failure of the grace of God. You failed to give that person the same grace that God gave you. Or you failed to give that person the same grace, and I love this one, we give ourselves. There's a lot of things I'll allow me to do, but if you do them, you're in trouble. That's the failure of the grace of God. The failure of the grace of God is that if you knew the truth today, and you understood what God should do with us today, we'd all be dead. And we wouldn't just die of heart attacks. We all need to die in the most grotesque manner you could ever think of. Some of you need to be burned to death, slowly. Some of you need to have your fingers cut off one at a time. That's what God ought to do to us. Because of all that we've done to Him and how wicked we've been in our lives. But you know what? He doesn't do that. You know why? Because by grace are you saved. And God gave us grace. And when that grace fails in your life and my life, it's the failure of taking the same grace that God gave us in our wicked life and then us having the ability to give that grace to somebody else in their wicked life. That's the root. That's the root. The root is the failure of the grace of God. And when that happens, lest the root of bitterness springing up. 
Now, there's eight things about roots I want to talk to you about, and I'm an expert on roots. Because every time I go to my bedroom to find my clothes, I'm rooting around for it for an hour. (laughs) Did you ever study roots? Root of bitterness. Now, this is why when you understand these eight things, and they're nothing theologically razzle-dazzle about them. They're just practical things that I got one day reading my Bible in this passage sitting under a big tree. I noticed that roots always grow under the surface. Now, the Bible says, Psalm 119, verse 11, that we're to hide the Word of God in our hearts. That's what's supposed to be inside. But if you don't hide the Word in there for God, let me tell you something, the devil's going to hide something in there for him. And that's where he gets the advantage. Roots grow under the surface. You see, there's a biblical process how to deal with circumstances, people in your life. When we harbor the issues in our hearts, instead of applying the, like the three reasons I told you last week, why there's no reason for these three things, that if you put these three things in your life, there's no reason for you to be bitter or unforgiving to anybody. I mean, many times we're, we're mad at people, we're uh, angry at people, we hate people, and the reason why we hate them is simply because we put ourselves in that situation that we never should have been in. Remember the Samson principle? Sometimes people get mad at God, so they take it out on us. When we can't grasp that, that's the failure of the grace of God in our lives. And sometimes when somebody does something to you or me, I just look at and chalk it up to the fact, well, (laughs) how else can I deal with that? You remember a time in my life when I did the exact same thing to God, and he took care of me. So you know what? That's called the failure of the grace of God. You've got to apply the grace that God gives you. And when you can't do that, that thing just settles underneath. It is called a root, a bitterness. Roots always stay underneath. And I'll tell you something else about roots. They grow best in darkness. Bitter people stay in darkness. The Bible says God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 5. And yet a person who is bitter has no real Bible study. They have no real ministry. They can't because they can't get past their issue. They'll come to church. You know, there's a standard joke. Please don't take it. But all, there's a standard joke that all the backsliders always sit in the back. Now, I know that's not true here, but I'm just saying that's a standard joke for Baptist churches or I guess all churches all down through there. Everybody comes in and it's always mindset that the backsliders want to sit in the back because they don't want to sit up front because of the fact that, and, and I know that's goofy, but that's just, and it's not necessarily true, but that's the way people think, you see. Now, you don't have to sit in the back, don't have to be up front next week. I'm not saying that for that reason. I'm just saying that's how people look at it. People who don't, my point is that people who are not where they need to be with God, who have bitterness, they don't want to be around things that are spiritual. They will smile, they will hug you, they will shake their hands, but they will stay as far as they can from where the real action is when it comes to ministry. You know why? Because deep down inside someplace, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, something happened in their life and it turned them off. And they never got past it. I'll show you how that thing grows in just a minute. Third thing. Roots always grow in dirt. Dirt's a type of the flesh. Remember our Bible principle? Make no provision for the flesh. You can't, you can't have a spirit of unforgiveness and grow spiritually. You just can't. And that's why you see so many people floundering or doing nothing. Bitterness and unforgiveness is a flesh problem. 
Many times people get bitter and stay bitter because they're immature. That's a, that's a big thing of it. Sometimes they get bitter and stay that way uh, because they're prideful. That's a big thing. See, sometimes it, it's your own pride that keeps you from doing it. I mean, it's your choice no matter which one of these you pick. Sometimes people get, uh, stay in bitter, get upset about something, and it's because they're selfish in it. All they see is them. That's Samson. Sometimes they're very arrogant. Sometimes they're very self-righteous. I've known people that were bitter about things that had the most bitter spirit that you would never want to be around. And if you talk to those people, why, you think they were sitting on the right hand of Jesus Christ. They're so self-righteous. But when it comes down to loving a brethren, well, remember that thing I gave you in Bible study where I took those seven things that God hates, the seven being six things and the seven being abomination, and I walked you through those things in Proverbs 6 and showed you from Genesis right up to the church age. What was the last one in the church age? Sowing discord among the brethren. You know why people do that? Bitterness. My mama used to say, if you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say anything. Bitterness. All right, the roots. The fourth thing. The more roots get fertilized or contaminated, the faster it grows. There's an old saying that I've heard all my life, and it's a true saying. It said, birds of a feather flock together. An old saying, it says, misery loves company. Boy, if those weren't more two true, two true things ever said in life, I don't know what it is. I talked to an old sheep herder one time, and he was telling me about sheep, and I was interested because the sheep are like Christians in the Bible, and I wanted to see if there's any parallels, you know, like studying a tree and getting an idea about the roots. And he told me a whole bunch of things about sheep, and I was amazed at how the things about sheep uh, line up to Christians. Uh, it's like animals in the Bible will teach you a lot. You know, this Bible, the Bible says that uh, uh, you're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Yoked. Because in the Bible, uh, two Christians that are saved people uh, doing a ministry are likened to an ox. You know an ox is not a born animal? You know you've got to get an ox by going through a special operation that makes you from being what you were to being an ox? You know it's a lot like being born again. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. So oxes in the Bible are picture of Christians. You know what, if an ox, hook them up together and they pull together, uh, if the oxen get to a place where they can't get over, you know what oxen do? They kneel down. You know what you ought to do as a husband and wife and you get to a place in your life you can't get back? Kneeling down would be a good place to start. You know, in the Old Testament, an ass is a picture of an unsaved man. You know what's a violation of the law to take a yoke and yoke an ox with an ass? You know why that's a violation? Because there again, the story in the Old Testament is showing the New Testament principle. Because the Bible says not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. See how thing works? It's an incredible thing. Animals are incredible in the Bible. And when you talk about sheep, this old guy told me one time, he says, you know what? He said, uh, and I was watching them. I was out in Montana, big old, big old ranch, about 500,000 acres. I mean, it went on forever. When they went out to check the cattle, they was on a three-day ride out and three-day ride back. I mean, it was huge. And I sat there that afternoon. It was probably the most enjoyable thing I ever did in my life for a long time. I sat there in the back of that old wag hay wagon, and I talked to that old boy, and I watched the sheepdogs just run those sheep. And those sheepdogs were the most amazing dogs I ever saw in my life. I mean, they would run around, and they, as soon as the sheep were where they were supposed to be, they'd lay down. But they'd never take their eyes off the sheep. The moment one got straight out, he'd run over there and he'd start barking at him. If that didn't need, you had to watch him. He'd start nipping at him. wouldn't bite him. He'd just start nipping at his heels and the sheep run back in. I thought to myself and I thought, you know what? That's just like a church. They're the sheep. I'm the sheepdog. I'd never hurt you, but I'll nip at your heels sometimes. And I bark a lot. 
But only bark when you get out. As long as you're doing good with the other sheep, I just lay down and watch it happen. But when you get out straight out there, I start barking. And if you don't listen to me, I may nip at you a little bit. But that dog never hurt that sheep. That guy old boy told me, he says, you know what? I says, uh, I said, what? I says, uh, I said, what's those sheep doing over there? He says, oh, those sheep are sick. And I said, how do you know that? He says, because sheep have a, uh, have a peculiar thing. When a sheep starts to get sick, he won't stay with the rest of the flock. Sheep, sick sheep start getting off by themselves someplace. I said, amen. He said, what'd you say? I said, ah, oh, nothing. <laughs> Misery loves company. Hey, I've seen bitter people in big churches that have their own section. No, they sit together. They do. I'd sit there. A lot goes on in pulpits and big churches that a crowd never hears when the pastors are all sitting up there. I used to be part of a church that every all the pastors had to sit on the deal, and, and I, I'd, uh, we could always, we could always tell the people. It's kind of like a, a, our own little world, you know. You could always tell where the people sat, where they were. It's an amazing little thing. And we'd always laugh back and forth. Being a pastor, we'd get up there and we'd always have a little joke about because all the because he knew who the disgruntled people were and I who they were. And it's amazing how they all sit together. And that thing is just they won't be part of what everything is going on. They just are, got their own little section over here. And it's just the way that it works. Because, I mean, roots have to get fertilized. And the more it gets contaminated, the faster it grows. You see, you feed on somebody else's problem. You don't want to fix your own. But every time you start getting convicted about it, you find somebody else has got a problem. And then you feel better when you hear their misery and you add to your misery. And they reinforce the fact that you're right. That old pastor, that old church, that old this. Yeah, they got all kinds. That's how it works. That's exactly how it works. People out of fellowship don't do like to be told the truth. So they hang out with other people out of fellowship and they band together in defiance of the Bible truth. And they think there's strength in numbers. You find this example in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel. You had all Israel camped around there and then outside in the outermost parts of the camp. You know who you had? You had the mixed multitude. They were part of them, but they were never really part of them. And every time Israel had a problem, it was the mixed multitude. They're the ones that wanted to go back to Egypt, a type of the world. They're the ones that said, all we got to eat is that old Bible, manna. I had to ask a guy one time years ago, I said, where you been on Bible study? He said, well, I don't come to Bible study anymore. I said, why is that? He said, because they ask the same questions all the time. And I said, yeah, they do. And you still haven't learned them, have you? <laughs> don't you know the price of learning is repetition? That had nothing to do with the Bible. There hadn't been the same question asked in six months. He wanted it to be that because he had a problem inside, you see? That's how it works. And birds of a feather flock together. They justify their sinful attitude by, by other sinful attitude. And people with an issue go around actually telling people their problems. It's like a dentist. You go to the dentist and you say, I got a toothache. And he says, which one is it? He says, I don't know. He says, I'll find out. So he takes that little metal crooked probe and he takes your mouth, opens it up, and he takes that thing, sticks it right down in the middle of a tube. Nothing there. Nothing, nothing there. He works it around about 10 until he finds the bad one. He takes that metal probe, puts it down the middle of that tooth. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. That's it. He found it. That's what people do. They'll go around talking to people, trying to find out who's got grievances, and when you find one, they'll line up together. You know why? Because contamination, fertilization. That's what roots have to have. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Been in this business for a while. I watched that tree for a long time. I'll tell you something about, about roots. They grow swiftly. 
I tell you, a principle in dealing with people, you also better learn. And some of you better learn this just for your own self. Be a great one. You've heard me say it before. But this thing grows swiftly. It takes a lot more time to get out of something you got into than it takes to get into it. It'll take you probably what's the average they say now? Three, four weeks to develop a really bad habit? Take you a year to get out of it sometimes. That's the way it works. It grows swiftly. You see, when you begin to forsake the Bible principles, in this case forgiveness, another automatic principle kicks in. It's called the compounding effect. I heard a financial guy say the other day, I forget who it was now, pretty good guy, and he said, you know what? He says, how stupid are we? He says, if, if 30 years ago or 20 years ago, I forget what it was, he says, if you would put $100 in an in a, in interest-bearing checking account, $100 and never touched it, or put it into an IRA or whatever, uh, just $100, 20 or 25 years ago, I forget what he said. He said, today you would have about $15,000. And I listened, listened to that and I thought to myself, man, that's, that's just like people's problems. Because once you don't do what's right and you decide to go the way you're going to go, then the devil gives you a support group. When you come into this church and you got issues, what do I do? I'll give you three or four people that I'll put around you to help you get through your problems. You know what? When you choose not to do what's right and you're going to go your way and do it your way and get out of that thing, you know what the devil does? He's got a plan for you. He'll give you three or four people to be your support group. Except one's growing up, you're growing down. That's where it is. It's exactly where it is. It's exactly where it is. And when you forsake the biblical principle, another automatic principle comes in. It's called the compounding effect. It's like you started out with a $100 problem. 20 years later, it's a $10,000 problem. It's compounded interest. Oh, you've added to it. Devils made sure that you kept adding to it. You kept meeting other people and, and having a bad attitude like you got. You keep adding to it. And now what started out as something it was easy to fix. Woo! Takes forever to get it fixed. I like Daniel chapter 1. I always thought this was interesting. I always thought it was interesting that the devil said that you give me these Hebrew children for three years. Three years. Let him feed. Let me feed him when I want to feed him. Let me give him what I want to give him. Let me put the, all the godlessness that I've got in Babylon in their lives. And at the end of ding dong, three years, they'll stand before me. I'd say today in the world we live in, if you get out on the world and you do your own thing and you're gone three years and that compounding effect, you ain't coming back. I've seen it happen. You play around with it every for six months, you know, touch and go, like some pilot trying to learn how to land. And you come back and you do it for a while, and it, but you stay out of that thing and keep compounding it and heading with the wrong crowd and getting the wrong attitude and getting this and getting that. And you can do it in a church. Three years, you're gone. I always thought it was strange. About the same amount of time it took the Lord to train his disciples. You see? God wants to train you. The devil wants to train you. Their training problems are quite similar, except one's for good, one's for bad. You got a support group with me here. He'll give you one. The devil will. You got verses that help you go through life. Fine. The devil will give you verses. We studied it the other night in Ezekiel 14. He'll give you exactly what you want to hear if you want to lie to believe. That's how people go to hell with the Bible. There really isn't much difference between the two. So one gets you to heaven, one gets you messed up. If you're unsaved, gets you to hell. If you're a saved person, gets you... Starts wrong, ends wrong. Judgment seat of Christ. See how it works? 
It grows swiftly. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 4, give no place to the devil. You ever stop and analyze that verse? Give no place to the devil. What's that mean, Bob? It means you give God, or you give the devil, God's place in your life. That's what it means. And boy, when you do that, you know what Satan has? Here's our verse. He has the advantage. He has the advantage. All right, the seventh one. I'm sorry, the sixth one. It grows stronger every day. Roots do. They grow stronger every day. This is simply a study of the old nature and the new nature. Provision for the flesh. Whatever one you feed, provision of the flesh is the one that's strongest in you. Now there's the Samson principle, you see. Going back to that. Oh, we're going to use that a lot. Samson's strength was in his hair. Yes, right. And the Bible says a man's hair is given to him, and the head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. So uh, your head, it should be Christ. That's what it's talking about. So his hair was in seven locks, type of the Holy Spirit of God that he's doing it through. When he lost his hair, he lost his strength. How did he lose his hair? By choosing to hang out with Delilah. And Delilah gave him a haircut. Now, don't you know, folks, that when your strength is a Christian, the Delilahs of life will always give you a haircut? I mean, it's just that simple. This is why the Bible says in Proverbs 31.3, Give not thy strength unto women, nor the ways that destroyeth kings. See that thing? That was Samson's downfall. He grew stronger every day. And it came to the point where the things that made his strength didn't matter anymore. He knew that his strength was in his hair. But notice what he did. He got a woman in his life, and slowly, if you study the process... First, he played around with her. Well, if you bind me in new ropes, if you do this, you do that. And it was all a game. When you start playing with the delighters of life, pretty soon the truth comes out and they'll give you your haircut. And I'm not just talking about a woman. That's what Samson did. He got a haircut okay, and when he did, he lost his strength. And when he lost his strength, it wound up being a suicide, spiritual suicide. Well, the last one. I'm sorry, the seventh one. Roots grow deep. And in time, the situation that you're working with probably becomes impossible. I've met bitter Christians who have been bitter for 30 years. You ain't changing anything in their life. You're not changing a thing. You know, you take a tree and plant it in your backyard, and after two years you decide you want to move it. Might be a little work, but you'll dig it up. You take that tree and put it in your backyard, and after 20 years decide you want to move it, you'll die pulling that thing out. You know why? Roots. Roots. Well, you can cut that tree down to the whole stub. The tree's gone. Then try to pull out what's left. The roots. The roots. The roots. I think life is like those big box of crayons we buy for kids. Got 88 colors in it. Mayan had a sharpener in it. To me, that's life. Life's vivid. Life had to be fun. Life is like taking out a box of 88 crayons. When your kids start coloring, they just get everything going. And the picture doesn't mean anything, but it's got a lot of vivid color to it. You got 88 colors in that box. You know what a bitter person has? They got one crayon. You know what color it is? Black. And in time, you paint everything you see with a black crayon. It grows deep. You want to know the reason for that? It's found in the last one, the eighth one. 
In time, the root of bitterness will attach itself to every aspect of your life. It'll wrap itself around everything in its path. We used to have an old house back in Ohio that I was raised in. Mom, dad died. My mom remarried. We, I lived in it for quite a while by myself, and then we moved in there after we got married. And this house was a very old house. Every time it rained, the basement was an inboard swimming pool. <laughs> Sewer was always a problem. We wrote a rooter guy. We were on a first-name basis. And he'd show up there, and he'd put that big snake down there, and he'd, he'd come down there, and, you know, he'd run it down there, you know, had to push that thing down there, and he'd get it down there, and then he'd run it back and forth, and he'd pull it out. You know what was around it? I thought it was toilet paper or whatever. No, you know what it was? It was tree roots. The tree roots had, how does a tree go impenetrate pipe? Well, I don't know that, but about a year after that, I went downstairs, and I'm looking through my walls, and I got little spriggly things coming through the wall. Roots. Nothing will stop roots. It'll penetrate everything. It'll attach itself to everything. It'll anchor itself to everything in your life. You know why? Because they'll make it as hard as it can to pull those roots out. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Tree roots will get into your sewer, get into your foundation. It will fasten themselves to everything in its path so it'll keep that tree from ever being pulled up. And when you let that thing go because of the process of, of not forgiving and then going to anger and then going to hatred and then going to bitterness and that thing gets you its roots down and it springs up because of the failure of the grace of God in our lives, in time it ain't changing. I'm going to leave you with one key concept and then I'm going to be done. Just take a second here. This is the key concept. This is something you want to remember. You want to remember it when you're helping with people. You want to remember it when your own life. There are many times in your life when people will do something to you or say something to you that you deserve it. We already covered that, that I deserve it. But in any case, bottom line is this. You may many times not be responsible for the situations and the circumstances that happen to you, that people do to you, that transpire into your life because of other people, of other circumstances, you may not be responsible for them in that case. But let me untaste this to you. But as a Christian, you may not be responsible for it happening to you, but you are responsible how you deal with it. And it has to come back to the biblical principles. And when you work with people, that's the way it's got to be. When it deals with your own life first, that's the way it's got to be. And when it's not, you can just get your check card out and you'll make a list of the bitter people who are bitter, wicked, go to churches, but they are the most wicked, bitter people, angry at everything in life, simply because it started with a root. And it started with their choice of not forgiving somebody. Next week, we'll get on the second half of that verse and we'll talk about his devices. Let's pray. Father,